You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution. How you guys doing? Uh, I guess i got to do it the old way, apparently. What's up, Revolution? I'm trying to act like more of an adult so I don't have to make you all yell like we're a bunch of hooligans, but apparently it's the only way to get your attention. Um, right on. So um, tonight we're going to be continuing our study through uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, um, or just Acts, if you want to call it that, which I've said a million times and it still makes me chuckle every time. No one puts the T in the book of Acts. It's A-C-K-S every single time. I always think that's funny whenever I have to read it in my notes, whatever. Uh, What we're doing as we study through the book of Acts is that we're looking at the godly examples that the early church gave us. um, And we're trying to learn from their successes and their failures, right? So sometimes whenever the church fails to do something in the book of Acts, we see an attitude that's ungodly. Um, Sometimes it's just as uh, helpful to see what you ought not to do. As what you ought to do. So that's what we're kind of trying to do is what did they do right? What did they do wrong? What can we learn from them? Um, And the example that we're actually going to look at this evening is one of evangelism. Now, if that word's a a churchy word for you, that's totally fine. Um, Evangelism, right? This word, evangelist, evangelistic, all that, um, comes from this root word, euangelion, uh, Greek word. It, It means to herald good news to people. Right? It just means to proclaim something, some past events that's happened to people, and it's always good news. Um, so for us, whenever we say evangelism, what we mean by that is telling people of their sin and their desperate need for a Savior, but then telling them the good news that God has made a way for salvation through Jesus. That's what we mean whenever we say we're going to talk about evangelism. Um, now, this was a huge part of the, early, of the life of the early church. Right, huge. Um, you can look, at, and, I, and I went through, and, and there were so many examples, I didn't feel like counting them all and numbering them all. It's like every single page of the book of Acts, there, somebody's preaching. Right? Someone's preaching the gospel. And this wasn't just preachers either. Right? This, just, this wasn't just Paul. This wasn't just Peter or, or those guys. Um, there's actually a, a section that I think is really, really, really interesting in Acts where it talks about the believers are like scattered throughout the empire, and the gospel spread with them. Right? Which means that this was the job of every single Christian, right? If the gospel spread with them, and the apostles actually didn't go anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain, if I'm remembering correctly, they stayed in Jerusalem. And all the other people were dispersed, and the gospel still spread. The church grew. Um, so this tells me that there were people in the first century in the church, the Christians, they were telling people about Jesus at work. They were telling people about Christ in the marketplace, in their homes, on the streets, in the fields, everywhere. Right? No matter where they were, they were taking the opportunities that they were given by God to tell people about Jesus and what he had done. Right? And I think that's because the early church took Jesus' great commission very seriously. Right? Back into Matthew, it's, it's the last thing in there. So Jesus says, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Right? Go tell them of what I've done. Tell them what it means to follow me and be my disciple. Teach them my commands and see that they obey them. Right? They took that really seriously in the first century. But if we're going to be honest, we don't see a whole lot of that going on in the church today. If we're we're just going to be as honest as we can with ourselves, right, we don't see a ton of this going on in the church. Now, there are some people who evangelize for certain, right? I know some of you, right? Or or you you always know, like, there there are missionaries going actually out to the nations very literally. So we know that there are some people um, who do this, but not the majority, Right? Most people do not evangelize. Most people, it's like pulling teeth to even get them to invite somebody to church right? whenever they're at work. 
Um, so the question that, that I started asking is, has anything in the church changed? Right? Has anything in the church changed that would lead us to not wanting to tell people about Christ? Right? We have the same Savior that the early church did. We have the same scriptures that the early church did. We have the same commission from Jesus, that great commission that the early church had. And yet they lived their lives drastically differently than we did, whenever, or than we do whenever it comes to telling people about Jesus. So something about our attitudes toward Christ must be lacking then. Right? We have changed. Like the mission of the church has not changed. Sadly, the attitude of the church has changed for the worse, I would argue. Or whenever I say the church, maybe it's more fair to say the Western church, right? America, Europe, those things like that. Because um, there are some, church, like the church in, in, in persecuted countries is just killing the game on this. Right, they're doing really good. Um, but some people say that they don't know how to evangelize. Right? They don't know what to say. So we're going to take that excuse away from you this evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be great. Right? What we're going to do is we're going to look at the first gospel sermon ever preached. Right? That wasn't Jesus. Right? So this is the first non-Jesus gospel sermon. <laughs> this is by Peter, is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, um, verses 22 through 41. Um, and just so you know, if you're new here, um, I see a couple of new faces. There are blue Bibles in the backs of the pews. Take them home with you. They're really easy to read. That's our gift to you. Um, but it's also going to be up here on the projector. Um, but as we're looking at this passage, this first gospel sermon, um, I want us to look at the things that Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, believed were necessary to say in order to declare the good news about Jesus. Right? What did Peter think that, a, that evangelism was? What did he think that a gospel proclamation was in its fullness? How did Peter do it? Um, and, and in doing that, in looking at this example, I pray that God would remove any excuses that we have for not evangelizing, for not telling people about the person and work of Jesus. And I call them excuses. They're not reasons for not evangelizing. They're excuses because God commands us to do it. So to not do it, there is no good reason. Right? No matter how introverted you are, Right? And I'm not trying to sound insensitive towards those of you who are a little bit shy or just really prone to being awkward. I'm looking at you, Nigel. I love you. <laughs> anyway, I'm kidding. Nigel's a good... I love you, man. Anyway, um, but really, there's, there's no excuse for us not to evangelize because this is something really cool we can see throughout the Bible. If God commands his people to do it, he empowers them to do it. Right? We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us if you're a believer, so we have been empowered to do this. It's just will we or won't we? All right, so without any more of an intro, let's, uh, let's jump into Acts chapter 2, 22 through 41. Peter says this. He says, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, and he goes on to quote a psalm. He says, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad, and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him, the Messiah, among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. 
God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, and he quotes another psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. This is really important, this next verse. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. all right, let's pray. Father, please send your Holy Spirit. We know that he's dwelling in the hearts of believers, but God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit um, in an exceeding way this evening, that you would open our, our hearts to receive your word, that you would speak through me. Um, God, give me the words that you want me to say this evening, because if I speak in my own power, um, if I speak of my own authority or just my own thoughts and not your thoughts and not your word, then it's, it's worthless and no one's hearts will be changed. No one will be saved and our lives will remain the same. So Holy Spirit, please do your work of converting people and do your work of changing us to be more like Christ. Speak to us and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this passage teaches us what the biblical proclamation of the gospel looks like. All right, in this sermon, um, I, I would argue this. Among other things, uh, Peter lines out the basic facts about Jesus and what he did. Right? This is, this is, there's a, a few different ways uh, of teaching that scholars will talk about as found in the New Testament. And this one, if you're a nerd, it's called uh, kerygma. Right? This is just a raw outline of facts. It's just a proclamation of facts without a ton of explanation. Right? And, and, and we know that that, that that is what Peter is doing here because he doesn't do a, a ton of explaining about all of the significance and nuances of the gospel. Right? We can see that that kind of stuff comes to the church later via letters, especially letters like Romans, right? where Paul gives us like the theologic, theological like treatise on, on what, it, what salvation is and how it works. Um, Again, so, so the nuances and significance of all the aspects of the gospel comes later. Um, but what Peter did do, for certain, was he very clearly proclaimed the person and work of Jesus. That's what we just read. All right, so what I want us to do, um, or rather what I want to do, and you guys are going to listen, I suppose, um, is break down Peter's sermon and find the major points that he gives. All right, that's really what I want to do. What, what, what's, the, what's the meat of what he's getting at here? And then I want to expound on them a little bit as we go. Um, and, I, and I really want to do this... So that we can all have just a, a ridiculously clear understanding of what it means to evangelize. Right? Again, because like we said earlier, all believers are called to this task. This isn't just people who hold positions in the church. This isn't just my job as, as a pastor or a preacher. All believers are called to this. Um, and not only that, but I, I want us to clearly understand what it means to evangelize. Because a lot of us tend to be confused about what it means to proclaim the gospel according to the Bible. 
Right? So just before we go, evangelism is not telling people your story. Right? It's, it's not giving your testimony. Right? That can, that can be a part of telling people the gospel. But right, telling them like how your life was before you met Christ and, and all that, that, that's great. I'm not telling you not to do that. But telling people your testimony of conversion and how your life has changed because of Christ is not sharing the gospel with them. A lot of people think that it is. Uh, another thing it's not, it's not inviting people to church. Right? That is not evangelism. That is great, and I hope that and that is a good first step in evangelism, right? If you're kind of scared and don't know what to do, that can be a great first step to get the ball rolling about a conversation about Jesus. But inviting people to church is not proclaiming the gospel. Um, it's, it, it's, it's not doing that. Uh, and, and a third thing that evangelism is not, and, and this one's kind of funny to me, it's not going up to people and just say, like, doing something nice for them and then telling them, like, Jesus loves you. Right? I, I, I grew up thinking that that was evangelism, and, and that's... Like, if, if that's all you say, right, Jesus loves you, and you really don't expound on it any more than that, you don't lay anything else out, you've not really done a whole lot. Um, you've definitely not proclaimed the gospel, right? So what I want us to do is, is take some time here and be reminded of what it means to tell the good news according to the Bible, all right? So let's just, let's just do it. The first thing that we see, the first thing we see in this sermon is Peter starts out by telling what Jesus did. Right? How he lived his life on earth. Verse 22, the first verse says, Miracles, signs, and wonders. That God did things through Jesus. Right? These were supernatural things in Jesus' life um, that proved that he was publicly endorsed by God. Which means this, God validated Jesus as the Messiah by the kind of life that Jesus lived and the things that he did. Right? Things like, again, the miracles and signs and all those things. His healing. That he, could tell, that he could tell someone who's never walked before, hey, just get up, man. <laughs> and they could just start walking. They've not walked for 40 years. That is insane. Um, that he could tell a dead person, get up out of the grave and that they would go. That he could feed multitudes with very small amounts of food. Right? That's crazy. And then I, I want to get a little bit um, less. And, and th- these things are, are just as, as fabulous um, and incredible. But we don't think about him this way a lot, right? So we know, like, those are his miracles and his signs and his wonders. I would argue this. The fact that he was sinless, <laughs> right? Like, the fact that you could look at his life, both public and private, and see him always just knocking it out of the park in obedience to God's command and a heart that loves God and a heart that loves his neighbor like he loves himself, right? He's just killing it publicly and privately. The way that he lived and interacted with people proved that he was the Messiah. The, the way that he taught, that he taught with authority, Right? Uh, that, that he could explain things in a way that no one else was, and he could get to the heart of what the Bible was getting at in a way that no one else could. I think that all of those things, in addition to the miracles that are very easily counted as miracles, attested to God's endorsement of him as the Messiah. Right. So everything Jesus said and did reflected the fact that he is the Son of God. He has power to heal, and he's also perfect. He has power to raise from the dead. He's completely sinless in his life and perfect in his teaching. Right. So... Thing number one, Peter starts out by telling what Jesus did. The fact that he was perfect. The fact that everything that he did pointed to the fact that God approved of him and had sent him. Uh, The second thing that we see in in verse 23 is that Jesus died. This is incredibly important if we're going to tell someone the gospel. Jesus died and he was crucified. But this is, I think, one one of the most important things that he said in verse 23 is that it was foreordained by God the Father. Right? This was a part of God's prearranged or predetermined plan that Jesus was going to be crucified. If nothing else, the fact that he put that in there means that Jesus died for a purpose. Right? 
Um, it wasn't just like you'll hear like liberal scholars or, or, or just liberal people in general that, that claim to be Christians. That it, it, it was a tragedy that Jesus died. And it was, right? It was the greatest sin that ever happened. But it wasn't just a random chance tragedy, right? Jesus didn't just die and that sucked, right? But it was, according to Isaiah, the Lord's good plan to crush Jesus. So Jesus died for a purpose. He died for a reason. And then later, um, as, as we read the letters that came later, we learn that this death that Jesus died... Its purpose was propitiatory, right? Which just means that its, its purpose was to satisfy the wrath of God, right? Romans chapter 3, my favorite chapter probably in the whole New Testament, right? Jesus was the satisfier of God's wrath for those who would believe in him. So Jesus died, and he died for a reason. And in Jesus' death, God's wrath for sin was satisfied for all who would ever come to faith in him. That's the second thing, right? Jesus died, and he died for a reason according to the plan of God. All right, that plan is to save people. The third thing that he points out in verse 24 is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Again, this sounds like funny, but for like a solid year, I think, of me uh, being a Christian, like my first year or so, I would, I would think I was telling people the gospel, and I would just talk about how Jesus died for their sin. I would never mention the resurrection, right? And this is like the center point, like the, the, the focal point of Christianity is that Jesus didn't stay dead. I don't know how I missed that for so long, right? But here, uh, that's the third thing that Peter lines out in verse 24. Jesus was raised from the dead, right? Um, and then he goes on to quote a psalm after he says that. And in the psalm, Jesus is referred to as the Holy One, right? You will not let your Holy One rot in the grave, which I think is a reference to the fact that Jesus was sinless, right? So this is proof of his innocence that he was raised from the dead, Right? He had never done anything wrong, so he must have died for some other reason, again, in our place for our sin. The second reason um, that Jesus was raised from the dead is, is proof of his messiahship. Right? In the other psalm that Peter quotes, he says, The Lord says to my Lord, which means the Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand. This is a place of honor. This is a position of power. So Jesus is most definitely the Messiah, and his resurrection proves that. Right? So Jesus has been raised and ascended to heaven at God's right hand, and in doing that, God affirms that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, like he says in verse 36. Which, Lord and Messiah, we can think of it this way, that he is both king of everything and the savior of those who will believe. Right? He is king and savior. Right? So through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God has declared that he is worthy to be trusted. Right? He's worthy to be trusted, and he was perfect. He was flawless. He is powerful. So we should put our faith in him. And he is worthy to be worshipped. He is worth, worthy to be followed, right? We should be his disciples, and he's worthy of our praise, everything that we have to him for his glory. All right, so let's just, I know we're covering a lot of information, and you're wondering what's going on. All right, those, those things that we just looked at, those are the basic facts of the gospel. Right? I'm just trying to make this as simple as possible. Those are the basic facts of the gospel. Jesus' life proved that God sent him. Two, Jesus died for a purpose. Three, Jesus was raised from the dead. Four, Jesus is Lord and Christ, or Lord and Messiah. Those are the basic facts about the gospel. We must proclaim those things for certain. But notice this. Peter doesn't stop there. That's not the end of his sermon. He has a few more verses that we see. But those are the facts of Jesus Christ's person and work, but this is not a full proclamation of the gospel. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have been in this position, but, but I used to think, again, I'm just trying to, to bear my own failure uh, before you in light of what the Bible says a gospel proclamation is. I used to think that whenever I would try to talk to someone about Jesus, I could just tell them the raw facts of what happened. 
right? Um, I used to think that, that that was enough. But what Peter is getting ready to do here really, really changes it, right? Because what Peter is getting ready to tell us, or what the example that Peter is getting ready to give us is going to make us really uncomfortable whenever it's time for us to proclaim the gospel. So he lines out the facts of what Christ did, that he is Lord and Messiah. And then he says this in verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Obviously, emphasis on whom you crucified. What does Peter do? He says, here's the facts. And you're guilty. Here are the facts about Christ. And then Peter immediately places guilt on the people. What for? For rejecting Jesus. You hated him. You had him crucified. So I know this in the immediate context. um, Peter's statement is aimed at those who are present with him who would have probably endorsed Jesus' crucifixion. There's a really solid chance this is like a couple of months after Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. This is only a couple months after that. There are people in Jerusalem who are probably in the crowd screaming, crucify him, right? So there's a lot of those people present here, but we know this. We know that all men are guilty of doing the exact same thing in spirit, do we not? The Bible says that man is naturally an enemy of God, that we're hostile towards him. We don't want to obey him. In fact, we hate him. That's what it means to be hostile against God. Romans chapter 8 says that black and white. I think it's 8, 6 in Romans. Now, what does that mean? It means all people have rejected God. Maybe not as explicitly as shouting for Christ's crucifixion, but that all men, given that opportunity to cry out that they wanted Christ to be crucified, naturally, that's what we all would have done because all men naturally want to go their own way. Now, that being said, it is incredibly important for us to make it known that all people are guilty of rejecting Jesus. All people are guilty of sin. And this, God will hold people responsible for their sin as well. That Jesus Christ will be the judge of all men. Right? The day of judgment is referred to all the time um, whenever people proclaim the gospel throughout the book of Acts and, and throughout the other letters in the New Testament as well. Is that Jesus Christ will judge and those who are found guilty of sin, he will throw into hell for eternity. Right? And, and the people who, who Peter was telling this to, they knew that. We knew that, or they, we know that they knew that because they cried out, what shall we do? Right? So that's implied and they had enough good theology to know that God must punish us because we have rejected his Messiah Right, but, but again, the root of all sin is rejecting Jesus. Right? Jesus says to reject him is to reject God. So to reject Jesus is to not worship God. First commandment, you must have no other gods before me. I deserve your worship. Everyone, blanket statement about the whole world. We have all failed to do that. So we, like Peter, if we're going to actually declare the gospel in its fullness, we must confront people with the truth that Jesus will judge them for the fact that they have rejected him, that Jesus Christ will not tolerate rejection. If we, and and, and I, I want to just drive that home. Because if we don't do that, if we don't confront people whenever we're telling them the gospel, if we don't confront them with the fact that, yeah, here are the facts, but you're a sinner and you need Christ, or he will judge you and he will punish you for eternity. If we don't do that, then all we've really done is told them another religious story that is completely irrelevant to them. Right? Peter's laying the guilt uh, for their sin on the people that he's talking to, made it real for them. This isn't just a story anymore. 
this has real ramifications on my life. Should I continue to reject Jesus? We have to make that known. But again, just picking back up in verse 36, he says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when the people are convicted of their guilt for rejecting Jesus, and they finally understand their need for a Savior because they're going to be punished for this, they cry out to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Implying, what must we do to be saved? Like Cornelius said, we talked about a few weeks ago, um, what do we have to do to be saved? And that's whenever Peter does the final thing that makes a gospel proclamation complete. is He makes a call to repentance. Right? And this is something that, that I've not realized until, honestly, probably the last like six months or so how necessary that this is if we're going to proclaim the gospel according to the Bible. He calls them to repentance. You must turn from your sin. This is what it means to repent, to change your mind about Christ. You must turn from your sin, turn towards God, asking for mercy and putting your trust in Jesus. That this Jesus whom I formerly rejected with my life, I now embrace and I want him and I desire him above all things. That's what it means to repent. We must declare to people, we must declare to people that you must do this. You must change your mind about Christ and trust in him. Right? And then he says that you must be baptized in Jesus' name. This does not mean that there's a work of baptism that is going to save us, but taking on Jesus' name in baptism, I think, is what he's alluding to. You must be baptized in Jesus' name, which means you must affiliate yourself with Christ, begin to obey him, be a disciple of him, right? Because this is going to be evidence of your trust and your repentance. Um, and your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he makes this call to repentance, tells them you must become a disciple, you must affiliate yourself with Christ, and then he gives them a promise. He will forgive you. So you're guilty, but through repentance, which implies faith, and affiliating yourself with Christ, you will be saved. So that is the gospel. Declaring the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Declaring his lordship that he is king, declaring the guilt of men for their sin, and then declaring salvation from judgment through repentance and faith. We must declare it all, because there is only one gospel. Right? To to proclaim the gospel in part is really to not proclaim the gospel at all. I just wanted to make that clear, because Peter thought, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, all of these things were important. So I, I would imagine we need to think that they're all important as well. Right? So now you know. If you say you don't know how to evangelize, you don't know what you're supposed to say, there it is. But I, I, would, I would wager this, because I can see it on your faces. Most of us, if not all of us, already knew everything that I just said. Right, be, honest. be honest. Raise your hands real quick. Did you already know those things about the gospel? Hey, right? This is great, because I, I know... Not that I'm such a great preacher, but if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you hear me say these things every single week. And God bless you if you've been coming here since I started being the pastor three years ago. You've heard like 150 times me say these exact same things, right? And I do that for a reason, right? We have to just 
ingrain these things into our heads so that, that like, if, if we get an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, boom, there it is. I don't even have to think about it. I've heard it so many times. I trust it. I believe it. It's been just, just burnt into my skull. Here it is. It's actually on purpose. That and, and, and we have to repent and believe the gospel every day if we're Christians. We're constantly affirming these truths to us, to ourselves, day in and day out. We're constantly trusting salvation through repentance. Right? We're constantly doing that. But like I said, most of us, if not all of us, already knew these things. Our problem, whenever it comes to evangelism, and here's where the rubber's going to meet the road in this sermon, our problem is generally not one of not knowing the good news, not knowing what to say. Our problem is that we lack the boldness to declare it. Really, the heart of it. We lack the boldness. What I'm saying is we're all a bunch of cowards if we won't declare the gospel to people, if we won't tell them this message that we just spent a solid 20 minutes going over. If we won't declare this, we're cowards. So why won't we proclaim it? I started thinking, I was asking Autumn, uh, it's my wife, and a few other people, um, what what are some objections to evangelism? that you hear from people whenever you ask them, you know, hey, have you been talking to anyone about Christ at work or anything? What are some common objections or excuses for evangel- or for not evangelizing? Um, we're going to go over a, f- a few of them. Um, I-, I hear this one a-, a lot. I can't answer all of the questions, right? Which is another way of saying, I don't know what to say. I'm not smart. I can't, especially if you're dealing with like an agnostic or an atheist or something like that. I can't answer all their questions. Every time that I, every time that I, I, I just chicken out because I'm scared to death, they're going to ask me something that I don't know how to answer. Just a quick question, rebuttal to that. Does it matter? Does it matter if you can answer all of, all of someone's questions that they might have about the gospel or about the Bible or about the nature of God? Does that really matter that you can't do that? I would say No. It does not matter. The reason why fielding questions won't save anybody. Answering all of someone's intellectual questions will not save them. And I'm just throwing this out at you. I used to be an atheist, right? There will always be more questions. <laughs> like, yeah, like you know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Like, like there will always be more questions. And why is that? Whether you're dealing with an atheist or not, I... I Again, just people that affirm God exists, but they're not Christians, those kind of things. They're always asking questions about the Bible. Or you're talking to them about Jesus, and they're like, yeah, what about this bit in Numbers, right, like that I heard about, or this bit in Leviticus that I heard about? Uh, why is that? Why do people constantly have questions whenever you're talking to them about Christ? I would wager this. They're trying to deflect the focus off of themselves and onto something else. They don't want to deal with the fact that you just told them the wrath of God abides on you if you will not repent and believe the gospel. They don't want to deal with that. I'm not saying that this is every time that someone has a question whenever you're trying to evangelize, because there are some honest questions out there. But I'm just, I'm just telling you, there will always be more questions because the vast majority of the time, unbelievers just want to deflect the focus off of the message of the gospel, right? The Bible says that like the light came into the world, Jesus, and we hated the light. Like We hate the message of the gospel. We don't want to deal with these truths in our natural state. All right, so just laying that out. It doesn't really matter because fielding questions won't save and there will always be more questions. And also, I just want to encourage you, you don't have to have a degree in theology to evangelize. Sometimes I fear that here at Revolution we've created an atmosphere of, like, good, like of studying all the time and being like a theology nerd. And glory to God, doctrine matters for certain. Studying the Bible matters. I'm not trying to do away with that at all. But I think sometimes people think, well, I'm not as smart as so-and-so in the church, so I just ought to be quiet. And ought not tell anyone because they could do it better or I might not be doing it as well um, as I'd like to or whatever. 
Um, you don't have to have a degree in theology to evangelize. And I say that because, and this might be a little bit controversial for you, the apostles didn't understand everything in the Bible. They didn't. I'm convinced of that. I think they, understand, they understood enough, <laughs> way more than me, but I, I doubt everything. And the reason why I say that is because whenever they preached this sermon, I don't think that they understood all the ins and outs and nuances of the gospel yet. I think those things were yet to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. Um, again, this is very early in Christianity. I don't think that there was a full-on theology of exactly what all happened on the cross, fully developed in the minds of the apostles. So they didn't know everything, but they knew enough. They knew enough. They knew Jesus is Lord. Man is guilty for rejecting God. Jesus is still Lord in spite of that. He will judge because of that. And repentance and faith is demanded by God to avoid the wrath of God for rejecting Jesus. They did know those four points. So again, you don't have to know everything because answering questions won't save. Romans chapter 10 tells us the gospel alone saves. The proclaimed or read gospel is the only thing that is going to change somebody's heart. It's the only thing that God has sovereignly decreed that the Holy Spirit is going to work through to convert sinners. So you don't have to know everything. Uh, Another one. These other two are going to be a little bit shorter than that one. Um, The other two things that I hear a lot is, I don't want to be, I don't want to like seem pushy or bigoted or arrogant. Right? And I would just lay this before you. Then don't be. (laughs) Right? Like that's easy enough. I don't want to come off as pushy or bigot or whatever. Don't be a pushy, arrogant bigot then. Right? Like I don't know what else to tell you. And the reason why I say that um, is because if we actually declare the gospel biblically, it is meant to to be declared seriously. This is not something that's a flippant conversation. Hey, did you know that God's wrath is on you for your sin? Eh, like, that, that is not how we declare the gospel. Um, it's not. But I, I have seen people declare the gospel quite flippantly. I've done it. They're like, hey, man, here's just some casual, like, table talk conversation going on. We're just hanging out. No. Like, it's meant to be declared seriously, but it's always completely wrapped up in love. Why else would we tell someone the gospel other than we love them and want them to avoid the wrath of God? Right? And whenever we declare the gospel, we, if we're going to do it properly, we, we do it saying that, like, I need it too. I need the gospel myself because I am a sinner. So there goes all the arrogance out of the window that maybe you were worrying about, that you would come off as arrogant. I need Christ just as much as you do. And then we declare this. salvation. What do you say? Salvation is for you and for your children and for the Gentiles. Right? The salvation is for anyone who will believe. So it's not bigoted. Right? It's not like confined to a race or like a socioeconomic status. It's for anybody. So we're not being bigoted whenever we declare the gospel. And also this, if you're worried about being pushy, show me one forced conversion in the New Testament. We don't convert by the sword. Right? We don't do that. Actually, we see examples where the apostles would shake the dust off their feet whenever they were rejected from a town and say, well, this town is left to God's judgment. They would shake the dust off their feet and go on to the next town. Now, I'm not saying that they never return back to that town to tell them again, but like, there's, it's, it's not pushy, again, if we do this biblically. So if those are three things that you were worried about, don't. If you're going to do it appropriately, just don't be those things. Um, and a third one, this is the last one we're going to look at, why people say they don't want to evangelize. Um, I don't want things to get awkward. That, that's the number one. I'm just being, I'm being honest. Like, I, I think that's the, that's the, even if people won't say it, that's the one that I actually know is in their head, Right? Like, not that I'm a psychic or a prophet. No, I'm not into that. But, like, I don't want things to get awkward. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's going <laughs> to. Right? It's going to get really awkward. Deal with it. I, I, seriously, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, it probably will get awkward. Um, 
Just consider the message that we're saying. And I know I've said it like six times already. God's eternal wrath is on you if you won't trust in Jesus Christ. We have the most offensive message in the world. That there are no good people. That everyone needs this. Is this something that separates us from all other religions too? Is that no one is good. And that apart from Christ there is no salvation. You can't be good enough to make God love you. Right? As we declare that to people, they may never invite you to something again. They may never want to see you again. They may see you coming and legit, like I've had this happen, turn around in Walmart and go the other way. Because they don't want to talk to you again. For declaring this message about Christ, especially in 2016, you could be labeled an insane person. Right? That you're delusional, that you're crazy. But again, like we said for the first point, does that matter? Does that matter? Would we rather be accepted by our peers or praised by God? All of these objections to evangelism, I think we can really sum it up with this. It's a fear of man. I don't know what else to call it. I think biblically speaking, any time that we have any kind of objection or excuse for not evangelizing, what we're really saying is I fear the questions that men might ask me. Um, I, I fear the opinions that men might have of me. I fear the rejection that my, I might have to deal with from people. Whenever we fear those things, we get to this place where we, we would rather please men by being silent than honor God by proclaiming Christ. I know I'm not the only one that, that's come to this conclusion already. I fear men, so I won't tell the gospel, which really means this. Fear of man, I would equate that with being ashamed of the gospel. Right? That we're cowards if we fear men more than we fear God. Here's a, here's, a, here's a little story. Uh, I love heavy metal, right? This is not a super new fact for most of you guys. Love metal. I'm not wearing black today, which is a shocker. But, like, in high school, I loved Slipknot, right? They suck now, right? Their last two albums have been horrible. Don't buy them. But uh, anyway, I'm, you probably shouldn't buy any of them. Like, I don't know why I'm, like, endorsing this band from the pulpit. <laughs> Whatever, right? They're heavy. They're good. Um, <laughs> right, but in high school, right, 14-year-old Dave, Super overweight. I have like a big afro, no facial hair. I was hilarious looking. Like it was awesome. Um, but like I was always wearing like Slipknot and Pantera t-shirts and all this stuff to school. And, uh, and anytime that anyone would bring up like a band, like a, a metal band, like Chimera or any of those guys, I was like, yeah, man. Like, and I would just talk about it forever and how much I loved their drummer or how heavy this one song was or how the lyrics were super cool to this song. Um, but if someone brought up Fallout Boy, I would get really quiet. I wouldn't make fun of them. Some of you see where I'm going with this. Don't get ahead of me. I wouldn't make fun of them, but I wouldn't say anything, right? It's because I really loved Fall Out Boy, <laughs> right? Like the poppiest of bubblegum pop bands since like the Beatles, right? <laughs> the Beatles were heavier than Fall Out Boy, if we're going to be totally honest, right? And I loved them. Like I was a closet fan. Like I had like shirts and like aspirations to see the concerts if no one would like ever find out that I went I had the discography I knew all the lyrics I could play like legit their first three albums like it was like nuts like top to bottom just play them on the drums all the way through loved them wouldn't talk about them though (laughs) why because I was ashamed of them (laughs) truly I was I was ashamed of being I was ashamed of being a fan of fallout boy All that to say this, I hope you can see the correlation that I'm making. If we won't talk about something publicly, we are ashamed of it. Are we not? 
Consider this too. Republicans and Democrats, like God help us, please. Right? Like 2016, the elections are going on. I will watch Republicans or Democrats. I'm not picking one or the other. We we don't do that. Um, I will watch them in the store or like that I work at, and they'll just talk about their ideology. They could care less what you think about them. You don't want to be their friend anymore because they're a Democrat. Whatever, man. Don't talk to me anymore then because you're an idiot. Right? Like, I'm right and you're wrong. And, and vice versa. It goes both ways. They don't care. Why? Because they are not ashamed of their political ideologies. They'll talk about it to anybody. Why? Because they think that this is the best way to live. They think these are the things that are going to fix the world's problems. Which both sides are wrong on that. But I mean, that's beside the point. But what I'm saying is they are not ashamed of what they believe. And they don't care about what kind of scorn or reproach comes upon them. So this, if we're going to tie that to the gospel then, that if we won't talk about it publicly, that we're ashamed of it, what's going to change our hearts to become bold for the gospel? Right? There's always this, you know, if, uh, and there's like the fear motivation, right, that I grew up with in church that has its place at times. Like if we won't evangelize, we really need to start questioning, you know, am I a Christian? Because this was such a hallmark of the early church. We see it all throughout the Bible. If I refuse to tell people about Jesus Christ, have I actually been converted by the Holy Spirit? Or have I just merely become religious? That's a real question we need to ask ourselves. But I'd like to go a little bit deeper than that. Um, What's going to make us bold for the gospel? I want you to consider the man who preached this sermon. Peter. I I know a lot of us know the story about Peter already. But Peter wasn't always bold like this. Right? Let's, Let's read an example of how Peter was not a couple of months before this event. John 18. We're going to check this out. Simon Peter followed Jesus as did another of the disciples. And that other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. This is Jesus' trial before he's going to be crucified. So the other disciple is probably the, the disciple John. He goes in with Jesus, head up. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Simon Peter stays out. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. And the woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and they stood around it, warming themselves. And Peter stood with them, warming himself. Let me skip on down. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. At Jesus' trial, Peter was a coward. I had never really, like, paid too much attention. Like, I knew he denied Christ. Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? No, I am not. Think about the weight of that for a second. It's complete denial of even knowing Jesus. And a lot of us, we look at that and we think, oh, that is disgusting, right? He denied Jesus verbally. That's horrible, right? And Peter did. He was a coward in that moment because he would not confess Christ to the world. But I would lay this before you. We deny Christ just like Peter. Maybe not verbally, but we deny him just like Peter whenever we refuse to tell the gospel. 
And I would draw this analogy. The Holy Spirit like prompts us to tell people about what Jesus has done. Whenever we know that they're lost and we find ourselves in a conversation with them, the Holy Spirit prompts us saying, tell them, are you not a disciple of Jesus? And we look the Holy Spirit in the face and say, no, I'm not, whenever we keep silent. We won't confess Christ. We do exactly what Peter did. Why? Because like Peter, we are afraid of the scorn, we are afraid of the mocking, and we are afraid of the potential danger that comes whenever we profess Christ to the world. But I would argue we are much, much greater cowards than Peter. Peter feared for his life. We fear the opinion of people. But here's, I think, where the change comes in Peter. Remember the grace that Jesus Christ showed to Peter after the resurrection, right? What happens? Jesus doesn't show up among the disciples where Peter is present, right? He hasn't seen him, right, since the crucifixion. Peter shows up to the disciples, and, and does he go up to Peter, and does he say, you denied me, now I'm forsaking you, good luck at the final judgment. No, that's not what he says. Jesus shows up amongst the disciples, and he says, peace be with you. I forgive you. You were all cowards. You were all hiding out. None of you believed that I was going to come back from the dead. Peter, you verbally denied me in front of everyone. Peace be with you. I forgive you. And we get a really up close and personal look uh, at the love that this undeserved forgiveness creates in Peter in John 21. It says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter denied Jesus Christ three times out of fear. And now we see this because of the forgiveness that Jesus showed him. Now he declares his love for Jesus in equal measure. Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Where three times before he'd said, I do not know who Jesus is. And then I think it's awesome. In spite of Peter's past denial and past failure to Jesus, that Jesus beckons Peter, come follow me again. Come and follow me. And Peter did just that from then on. He followed Jesus. He preached the gospel. He even died for the name of Christ being crucified himself. That's boldness. So what caused the change in Peter? Grace caused the change in Peter. I'm I'm convinced of that. For certain, he saw the resurrected Christ, and that would make anyone bold. But like, I think on a spiritual level, I think it was the grace of Jesus shown to him. Like, think about it. After failing in such a huge way, Jesus took Peter back and told him to follow me. Like, Jesus looks at him and says, I paid for your cowardice. I knew you would deny me. I actually told you you were going to deny, me before, to deny me before you did it. I paid for your sin on the cross. I love you. Now get up and follow me still. And I think that this did something to Peter. I think it made Peter internally say, I can't deny him ever again. 
I, I can't. He has loved me too much, and he has forgiven me for too much, and I have been too much of a coward in the past, and the fact that he still loves me, I can't deny him ever again. I really think that that's, I think that's what's going on in Peter's heart. And Jesus does the exact same thing for us today. No matter how we have failed him, no matter what the sin is, right? No, ma- no matter what it is. Not just a lack of evangelism. I want to encourage everyone in here who's an actual believer in Christ, who's trusting in him, no matter what your sin is, he beckons us to get up and continue following him. He says, I forgive you. You're repentant. I forgive you. He loves us in spite of us. That's one of the most beautiful messages of the Bible. In spite of us, he still loves us. But he even offers to forgive us when we deny him by failing to evangelize. Right? And I don't know how to make this real for you guys because that's the Holy Spirit's job, right? I'm just being honest. I don't know how to make this connect in your heart. But the fact that Jesus Christ would take us back in spite of the awful sin of denying him with our lives and refusing to tell people about him, that should make us stand in awe of just the gracious nature of Jesus Christ. It should make us say, how how then could we not be bold for Christ in light of the immeasurable grace of Christ? He has loved us so furiously in spite of our sin. How could we not love him passionately in return? How could we stand to contain the good news of who he is and what he has done in light of how much he has forgiven? How could we not? Grace made Peter bold for Christ. And I'm convinced that truly coming to terms with the magnitude of our sin and the grace given to us is going to be what emboldens us as well. I'm convinced of that. Because until we really begin to understand the the love of Jesus given to us that we don't deserve, we're never going to be able to love him more than we fear men. Ever. Until we really understand how much he loves us and how much he's forgiven, we're never going to love him more than we fear people. But whenever we dwell on the wonder of his grace, I'm convinced that like Peter, we are going to be changed from cowards to lions for the gospel of God. Let's pray. Jesus, your grace is unfathomable. That we would fail to evangelize, fail to proclaim your person and work, and yet you would love us anyway. That is staggering. Like it staggers the imagination. Father, forgive us for denying your son. Forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for all the conversations that we've we've been in, that we, we feel you prompting us, tell them about my son, they're going to go to hell. And we put it off and we say, someone else will, or I'm not good at this, or I'm afraid. Forgive us for those times that we aren't bold. And Father, let your grace and your forgiveness given to us through Jesus Christ embolden us to love you more we know that if we love you, we'll obey you. So Holy Spirit, make us bold for the gospel. Do something in our hearts that makes us not be able to contain this message any longer. Help us to keep in mind what actually matters. Let us declare the, the work of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.